As always, it's an honor and privilege to be here with you, to be able to explore God's word together. Uh, we are in the book of James on our series, Faith Works, Volume 2. If you're new with us, I wonder why it's called Volume 2, because we looked at the first part of the book of James in the fall, and guess what it was called? Faith Works, Volume 1. There you go. Uh, but we're in the book of James, and uh, you know, there's, there's many themes that are sort of in the book of James, but two of them that are woven within its fabrics from the beginning all the way through to the end are, are these sort of dual understanding of wisdom and humility. And last week we looked at what does it really mean to, to live wisely? And this morning we're going to look at what does it mean to, to live humbly before the Lord. In fact, it's the main focus of the fourth chapter. And we're going to discover that not only is humility important to James, it's extremely important to the Lord that we be humble before him. And after all, it ought to make sense as we will look at, we, we do serve a humble God, which is an interesting thing to think about. But the God who spoke the world into existence really does, uh, among his character traits, have this, this profound example of humility for each and every one of us to follow. And, and James writes in his typical, practical, and very workable way. And what I mean by that is he, he really brings it down to its essence so we can understand what does it really mean to live and, and walk humbly before God and others. But before we even dig into the text, I think it's important that we look at, at what humility is. What is humility? Well, here's a biblical definition of humility. Humility is a personal quality in which an individual shows dependence on God and respect for other people. Let me say it again. Humility is a personal quality in which an individual shows dependence on God and respect for other people. And so again, it's, it's so important that we understand that this idea, this, this reality of humility really is a part of who God is. In fact, in Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6, God is represented of being incomparable, high, and great. And yet he humbles himself to take note of his creation. Think about that for a moment. We see over and over again, for instance, in the words of some of the psalmists, you know, who am I that God would take notice of me? Have you ever thought that? Who am I that, that every single thing I think, every single thing I do, in fact, the very number of the hairs on our heads, some of that's more uh, difficult than others, you know, that he knows that, that detail about us. But the scripture says that he actually wove this together in our, in our mother's womb. And so Paul even writes this of Christ. It says, in Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That our Savior humbled himself. Since God humbles himself, it ought not to really surprise us that he calls us to do the same. Now, we looked at what humility is, this, this understanding of, of being dependent upon God and showing respect to others. But let's look at the antidote. Let's look at the, the opposite of humility, which is pride. Pride is the excessive love of one's superiority over God and others. If humility is dependence on God, pride is superiority over God. I know what's best, he doesn't. If humility is showing respect to others, and then pride is, is saying, well, I, I feel that I'm better than other people. My, my needs need to be met more than anyone else's. I'm number one. And so it's interesting that before James talks about the humble life, he speaks of pride. Look with me, James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James uses this this, this vivid picture of of fights and quarrels, and he's really referring to internal conflict, interpersonal conflict, or conflicts with others. In fact, remember that James is writing to, to the church, and so he's talking about interpersonal relationship issues within the church itself. And we are to understand that that if we are at war inwardly, it's inevitable that we'll be at war outwardly. And so if there's a struggle within us inwardly, it only makes sense that there'll be a war that takes place outwardly, that that what happens inside of us spouts out to the the world around us. And then in verse 2, he even uses this really strong language. He talks about murder and war. Now he's speaking metaphorically here. He's given us a picture, but we must not allow this metaphor to take away from the force of James' words. He, he, he means to, to use the words of war and, and murder in order for us to understand this, how horrific the situation is and how contrary this type of interpersonal conflict is to what God wants for us. In fact, Jesus, you might remember his, his teacher recorded for us in the book of John, chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus proclaimed, By this all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said, in fact, he, in his high priestly prayer, he said, They'll know why I came because of your love for me and one another. Think about that. That, that they'll have a great understanding of why Jesus came to earth. They, who's they? Those who've yet to receive him as Lord and Savior, when they see the way we love one another. And so you can understand why this situation that James is writing about, this this horror of pride is something he tackles head on. Think about it this way. Pride leads us to allow our desires and passions, like an armed camp within us, to be ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of our personal gratification. Pride pride sort of always puts us on edge. Looking to say, is there anyone trying to get in between me and what I feel I deserve? And if they are, we're going to battle. Verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. It's an interesting thing because when you first look at that verse, a couple of things, you go, wow, he jumps right into prayer. (laughs) Talking about pride and all of a sudden there's this prayer thing. And then the second thing, you might sit back and go, wow, all I have to do is ask and I can get it. But then you got to drop down to verse 3. Verse 3 makes it clear that that prayer requests remain unanswered because whatever God would give in response would be spent on what James writes as your passions. What's he saying? That if if God gave those things that we ask for when we're we're being prideful, that it would do harm to ourselves, it would do harm to our relationship with others, including God. And so he says, you find yourself with unanswered prayer. It's interesting that that James doesn't write that God doesn't hear the prayer. God certainly hears the prayer, but we don't receive, he says, because the answer is no or not yet because we're not asking rightly. Now, we talk a lot about here when we look at Scripture, context is king, and context is where that verse is in in the passage and within the book and within the Testament, within the whole of Bible. And so when we look at this teaching on prayer, it'd be helpful to look in other areas 
and what it teaches on prayer to give us insight into what James is writing. And if we go to 1 John 5.14, we read this. This is the confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So James writes, you don't receive because you're praying out of pride. And if you got what you were asking for, ultimately it would hurt you, it would hurt others, it would affect your relationship with God. John gives us this insight in 1 John that says, if you ask according to God's what? Will. According to God's will. In fact, the focus of Christian living and the motive of prayer is the exact same. God has called us to deny ourselves, forsaking doing our own thing, and seek and do the will of God. Uh, people say to me, you know, when they're, they're starting this whole prayer journey, they say, where, where would you start with prayer? By the way, the, the Lord's Prayer, Disciples' Prayer, is a good place to start when they said, how should we pray? And Jesus said, pray like this. It's a great prayer to use as a pattern of prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? I mean, what a great prayer. But you know what? All of Scripture is good. If you want to learn sort of the pattern of prayer in God's will, then, then, it's, then it's, it's, it's praying the prayer, the, the very word of God back to God. You go, why? Because he doesn't know it. No, because we don't. Come on, church. And it gets into us. Like even if we look at 1 John 5.14, it says, this is the confidence we have toward God, but if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us praying back to him. Lord God, thank you for the confidence I have. As I pray according to your will, that I know it will be answered. And I don't know your will in all things, but I know your will in some things. And perhaps I'm in this relationship and there's some, there's some strife in the midst of it. And I go, Lord, that doesn't honor you. What can I do? Is there something I can do to humble myself? To not allow myself to be on such guard that, that, that you can't work through me? You get the point? And so, so we have this beautiful picture of the Christian life. I'm reminded of Proverbs 13.10. It says, pride leads to conflict. Pride leads to conflict. And where there are conflicts, fighting and warring, yes, within any relationship. Remember, James is writing to the church, within the church. And yes, unreciprocated prayer, the sin of pride is always present. Always present. Think of it this way. Pride is to life in the flesh what humility is to life in the spirit. And so James starts with us understanding pride. And here's his overall point when it comes to pride. The problem with pride is that it hurts us. It destroys relationships with others. And the spiritual price is a breach with God. The problem with pride is that what? It hurts us, destroys relationship with others, and its spiritual price is a breach with God. All of this is a spiritual issue. And so James sets the stage to lead us into this teaching on pride, on humility. James 4, 4 through 10. Look at the passage with me. And by the way, he writes very strongly. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is extremely strong language that James uses, but it's an extremely uh, important issue that he's dealing with. Again, conflict. And he, he's talking about the difference between pride and humility and that pride causes disorder and that humility eventually we'll look at does something quite profound in the life of a believer. And so in verse 4, this idea of being adulterous, that anytime we, we turn our back on God and do our own thing and seek other things, we're being adulterous toward God. And, and so that's why James uses that word. And it's been said, as A.D. children, meaning those who are in Christ, as A.D. children, we can fall into the trap as living our old B.C. lives before we came to Christ. Isn't that the truth? We come to Jesus, we receive him as Savior and Lord, and we go, thank you for the salvation part. I'll still deal with the Lord in my own way. It's not the way the Christian life's supposed to be, is it? Lord, I've come for the fullness that you've promised to those who walk with you, and so you're Savior and Lord of my life. I want to turn my back on my old ways and, and walk with you. We understand that, that the scripture teaches that the old self is dead, but, but it's dead sort of dying, isn't it? It's dead in the sense that Jesus has done the work, but it won't be really completely out of the, out of the picture until Jesus returns. And, and so I, I'm sure you've experienced, like me, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, but there's still parts of that old self that creep in, especially when I lose focus on the Lord and put focus on myself. I have never been in a fight and felt like I was glorifying God. Now, I'm not talking about fighting for the faith. I'm not talking about fighting for what's right. You know what I'm talking about. I've never been in a self-seeking argument and later thought, whew, my spirit's filled. <laughs> I'm feeling so close to Jesus. This is like heaven itself. Never, never. That old self has creeped in. So we're going to die to self every day, don't we, church? Every day, Lord, help me die to self. That doesn't mean that we erase our personality or temperament. It doesn't mean that we're still not unique individuals and that the way that we look when we follow Christ and, and are conformed to his love and conformed to his character and on mission with him doesn't look different because we're, we're unique individuals, all different parts of the body of Christ. What it means is, however, that that old self is dead and the new self, that new creation gets to shine. And there's times where I've been surprised when that new self is shining. Arguments that I would have had that, that the Lord lets me just sort of inside smile and go, I'm not going there. Not worth it. Too much to do today. God opposes, James writes, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what I'm talking about. He opposes the proud. So when we puff ourselves up with pride, we've already lost. But he gives grace to the humble. The proud resist God, but, but those who are humble are dependent upon the Lord. The humble, the Lord gives grace upon grace. So we have this picture of pride, which is devastating, and this picture of humility, which is, which is life-giving, not just for us, but for those around us in the hope that they too will walk with Christ. Then in that same text, he gives us three actions that empower us to live humbly. Because you may be asking yourself, well, it's difficult. Well, James knew that, and so did God. So God inspired James to write with us three actions to empower us to live humbly. 
The first it says, we must submit ourselves to God. Verse 7, we must submit ourselves to God. As followers of Christ, we can't, be, uh, we can't doubt whose side we're on. we got to choose Jesus. What does James mean by submit? I love this. Often when we think of submit, we think of passivity. But in James' usage and the language that he chooses here, it speaks of taking up allegiance to a great superior in order to fight under his banner. So it's interesting. He writes about warring, pride. Now he talks about, well, you also sort of war as someone who's walking humbly. But it's a different type of war. In, in, in pride, it's a war under your own banner. It's about me. In humility, it's a war under God's banner. It's about him. God fights differently than us. Come on, church. And, and so submission, submitting ourselves to the Lord is saying, God, I'm going to place myself under your banner, not mine. I could fight for myself. By the way, it doesn't lead too well. I could fight under my own banner, but I'm choosing to fight under yours. You direct me. You lead my steps. You're Lord of my life. He says, listen, we need to submit ourselves to God. That's the first action step. The second is this. We need to resist the devil. We can never be truly humble if we're unwilling to actively resist the devil. And again, James' word here for resist is an interesting word. It's not an attack word. It's a defensive word. It speaks of one manning a defensive camp, knowing the enemy's pressure is ceaseless, and constantly they're under fire. And yet they resist. They resist. And I love the promise, if you resist the devil, he must flee. flee. And by the way, he will come back. But there's victory in those verses. Now remember, when James writes about the devil... As we look at the totality of James' teaching and also throughout Scripture, we can use this for all those things that tempt us to stray away from God. That it's always the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the culture in which we live. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you immerse yourself in the culture, it's really hard to live for Jesus. That's why we need to immerse ourselves in God's word in order to be in the culture. See what I'm saying? It's always the flesh. What is that? That's our leaning, right? To, to sort of stray away from God. The old hymn, you know, Lord, tether me to you because I'm prone to wander. And so we resist the world. We resist the culture of the world. We resist our own leanings, that old self. And we resist the devil. And that's a pathway to victory when we do those things. So we submit ourselves to God. We resist the devil. And if we resist the devil, he must... Okay. And then the third, we need to draw near to God. We find ourselves encouraged to draw near to God by the promise, and he will draw near to you. Now, the problem is when we want to put the promise before the command. And I think many times we find ourselves in that situation where we're like, Lord, I will be so close to you if you just make your presence so known to me. Right? Lord, I know you're calling me to have this conversation but if you just make me feel great about it, I'll do it. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Doesn't mean he's far from us ever, church. He's talking about in walking in obedience. 
People ask me, do you ever feel great before you do something for God? I say, well, occasionally, but actually I usually feel great after I've done it. <laughs> ever been there? Tough conversation, Lord, you want me to have it. I'm not feeling really great about it. Give me the strength to do it. You do it, and you're like, Lord, man, I feel such peace now. That's what James is talking about. When you're submitting yourself to God, when you're resisting the devil, when you're drawing near to the Lord, the Lord draws near to you. He does something quite amazing in your life. And what we really discover is that humility is essential in the Christian life. He even gives us this practical picture of humility. Look at the second part of verse 8 and verse 9 again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. By the way, that sounds really depressing. Does it not? But who is he writing to? Put it in context. He's writing to Christians who are in conflict. Who in the midst of their conflict are probably walking around feeling pretty good about themselves. Well, I got a good one in there. I won that fight. I made my point. And so what does James say to those people? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's saying to those who are living in pride, be wretched and mourn and weep. What you're doing isn't good. Understand that. Remember the words he used? Murder. Horrific words. Why? Because it's a horrific thing. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. You're acting like everything's okay. Not everything is not okay. Turn your joy into gloom. Why? Because the pathway to freedom is through repentance. Do you realize that? The pathway to freedom is through what? Repentance. Turning to God, admitting our sin. I really believe one of the challenges among many, it's probably been a challenge in the church since, by the way, the first century. But as I look over preaching in the pulpits of many of our churches, they don't talk about sin. And they say, well, I don't talk about sin because it's not a popular word. When has it ever been? But you can't talk about repentance without talking about sin. And if you're not talking about repentance, no one's going to have freedom. You say, I don't want to admit all the wrong in my life. Because when I admit all the wrong in my life, I feel horrible. I feel gloomy. I, feel, I, like, I begin to mourn. I, my laughter is turned to mourning. Isn't that what James is writing about? But until you're honest with your sin, you'll never really give it over to God. Because you'll think it's no big deal. And before you know it, it snowballs, doesn't it? And that not big deal becomes somewhat of a big deal until it's right in your face. And you go, where's the hope? It's where it's always been. But man, what if you dealt with it back here? You say, I can't deal with it here. Yeah, you can deal with it here. But it's better if you can deal with it back here. Amen? That we keep a short account for God, with God. And it's amazing. You go, well, that's just so gloomy. I don't know. But look at James 4.10. Those who humble themselves before the Lord, he will... Are you looking at it with me? Those who humble themselves before the Lord, he will... What a reversal of reversals. What good news. If that doesn't light your fire, you have no wood. I mean, come on. What, what, what an amazing thing. 
We come to God. We humble ourselves before us. And the God of the universe stoops down and picks us up. Who are we that God would love us so profoundly? Who are we that he would love us so brilliantly? To stoop, the scripture says, down to our level, pick us up and lift us up. We're his beloved children. We're his. And victory is in him. When we place ourselves not under our banner, but under his banner, amazing things happen. Such as the God of the universe showing such profound love. See, there's a marked advantage to humility. So many times we think, man, if I live this life of pride, that's where it's at. That's where I get what I want. But it's not really. It It may be what you want, but it's not what you need. When we humble ourselves before God, eventually it brings honor. And with it, genuine blessing and abundant life. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress writes this. He says, he that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. That's some good writing. George Mueller lived in the 1800s, was an evangelist and a director of a children's orphanage. He was known even in his day for his profound faith and humility. He was a man with a genuine faith in God. I won't say supernatural faith in God, except for the fact that all of us who are believers have the very spirit of God in us, which makes us somewhat beyond natural, right? Just a normal believer living for Jesus every day. And and one of his friends came up to him one day and said, George, how do you live the life you live? And George looked at his friend and said, the spirit in me is the same spirit within you. He said, but one thing I know is one day, As I was praying, I felt the very spirit within me say, die to yourself, George, die to yourself. He said, since that day, every day, throughout the day, I say, oh, Lord, help there be less of George and more of you. Less of George and more of you. He said, as I've done that, the Lord, the Lord has lifted me up. If you're sitting here this morning and wondering, how you too can be exalted by the God of the universe. The path up is down. The reverse of reversal, the path to, to fullness in Christ is to empty ourselves of us. Again, not, not our identity, not our, we are who we are in Christ, not, not the uniqueness that he's developed within us so that we could be used in the kingdom of God in place where we are, that peace in, in the body. No, 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 not that. But, but that, that, that old self, Lord, kill that in me every day. Let that new creation blossom. That I don't walk in pride, but confidence in the God whose banner I'm under in the midst of every conflict, in the midst of every challenge. And James says, as you humble yourself, he will exalt you. First step, if you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, no better time than the present. He's waiting for you. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. 
Jesus died for our sins, resurrected for our salvation. God doesn't simply tell us he loves us. He demonstrated in the most dramatic way anyone ever could by coming, moving into our neighborhood, so to speak, dying for our sins, being resurrected for our salvation, preparing a place for us and good news of good news, going to come back and take us home. If you've yet to receive him, whether you're on this campus or watching online, the quietness of your heart, say yes to Jesus. And wherever you find yourself, brother and sister in Christ, church family, listen. Take a moment, humble yourself before the Lord that you can be exalted in his hands, under his banner, fortified with his kingdom power. Let's pray. Father God, there is power in the name of Jesus. The scripture tells us that every knee will bow, every, every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we have a choice. We either do it willfully today or against all odds in the future. I pray we do it today. I pray, Lord God, that if we've yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, but even now we would take that posture of humility within our own heart and come before you and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying for my sins. You paid a price I could not pay. You paid a price only you could pay. And you loved me so much that you humbled yourself, as Paul writes. And you died, even a criminal's death on a cross, that I could live in you. And Lord, you're a living Savior. You're our resurrected Lord. And we praise you for that this morning. We thank you for the very power of Christ, the very spirit of Christ that lives within us. And Lord, we understand that this side of paradise, the journey isn't easy, but it's victorious in you. As we place ourselves under your banner, but you do something in us. You do what you want to do. And in every single normal believer, you want to take the ordinary and do something extraordinary. God, would you do that this morning? As people throughout this room who are online, Lord God, are lifting up their prayers to you, praying according to your will, would you bring freedom? Would you give direction? Would you be their comforter? People who are pleading on behalf of their families, would you bring healing? Lord, would you heal marriages in our church? Would you, Lord God, heal, heal hurts in our church? And Lord, as we scatter throughout this community, as you've blessed our gathering this morning, as we scatter throughout our community, may we be everyday missionaries in the everyday mission field of the places where we live, where we go to school, where we work, where we play. That all will know But this fullness of life that's found in Jesus is also available to them. In all this we pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus.